just want to welcome everyone, welcome everyone again to our to the Genetic Engineering and Society Center's weekly seminar series colloquium. We meet on Tuesdays from 12 to 1, and from uh, here at the Poe Building, uh, room 202. We're also live streaming and virtual, so for students that are unable to attend in person and faculty and also the public, they're welcome to join us at this time. And this will also be recorded and available a uh, day later on the on the GES website as well as in podcast format. So uh, just as a quick reminder, and I would like to give a big welcome to Amy Huang, who is the University Innovation Manager at the Good Food Institute. Welcome, Amy. Thank you for joining us. Um, Amy has been really gracious uh, and informative this summer. She has also uh, spoken with our Ag Biofuse students, um, helping them talk to them about the, one of their group project ideas. And so we're so excited to have you here today and to talk about the quest to reimagine meat. Um, you are, she is the University Innovation Manager at the Good Food Institute. As I said, she's a member of GFI's science and technology team. And she works with students and faculty around the world to turn universities into hubs for alternative protein research and education. And she has also um, graduated from Harvard University with an AB in economics and global health. And I'm going to stop my screen sharing, Amy, and let you start your screen sharing. So welcome once again. Sounds good. Thank you so much, Don, for the invitation, Fred, for the invitation, and, and to everyone for having me. I'm really delighted to be here with you today. All right, so I went ahead and shared my screen. Don, can you see everything okay? Yes, great, thank you. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll go ahead and get started then. Again, thank you so much for having me here today. My name is Amy Huang. Um, I work for the Good Food Institute, and I'm really excited to talk to you about this quest to reimagine meat to feed 10 billion. So today we're going to start off by discussing the case for rethinking meat, like why reimagine uh, meat when everyone loves it. Um, and then I'm going to introduce the Good Food Institute. We'll talk through the alternative protein landscape and existing white space opportunities. And then we'll talk about some pathways forward. So today we're gonna to be talking a lot about meat um, and, and why meat, right? Well, our, our relationship with meat is both really simple and really complicated. It's simple because Meat has been a staple of the human diet for as far back as our species can remember. It's at the center of our social and cultural traditions. It's the way we signal wealth and machissimo. Um, and it, it serves a really important um, social purpose in our lives. But meat is also deeply complicated. And the reason it's deeply complicated is because um, 99% of our meat is produced by industrialized animal agriculture, which, which sits at the intersection of some of the most pressing issues we're faced with today as a species. The first of these intersecting issues or, or cause areas is global food insecurity, right? How are we going to feed enough or produce enough food to feed the world. Um, industrialized animal agriculture makes really inefficient use of some of our scarce planetary resources, which we'll talk about more in subsequent slides. 
And then there's this big intersecting cause area of environmental devastation. Um, we know that industrialized animal agriculture is one of the primary drivers of global greenhouse emissions, accounting for over 14.5%. But I also don't want to be reductive about environmental sustainability, right? The environment, um, it, it spans beyond just global greenhouse gases. We also need to look at land use, water use, eutrophication potential, which is the nutrient runoff that results in, in dead zones in our waterways, and the tremendous loss of biodiversity, um, all that can result from industrialized animal agriculture. And then there's this big opportunity to bolster the resilience of our public and global health systems by mitigating the risk of the next global pandemic. Um, and in every single corner of the world today, we're feeling the effects of the novel coronavirus, um, which we know is zoonotic in origin. Um, and it turns out 75% of emerging human pathogens are zoonotic in origin. And so by removing animals from the food system, we again have this huge opportunity to bolster the resilience of our public and global health systems and make it so that it's a lot less likely in the future we'll have a pandemic that is this far sweeping. Um, and we can mitigate the risk of having a pandemic that is more transmissible and more deadly um, than the novel coronavirus has been. And then there's this fourth grouping of animal suffering. Um, estimates are wide ranging, but anywhere from 150 billion to 3 trillion animals a year, fish are kind of hard to count, um, and growing are, are cold for human consumption. So let's dive into that first bucket, global food insecurity or the inefficient use of resources. When you take a look at the percentage of Earth's surface, that is land, you'll find 29%. And of that land, 71% of it is habitable land. Of that habitable land, 50% of it is already used for agriculture. And the remaining 50% is comprised of dwindling forests and shrubland. And then our agricultural land, um, of our agricultural land, 77% of it is utilized for livestock production, but only 33% um, of our protein supply results from the land used for livestock production. So what you're seeing is the relative majority of our agricultural land being used to produce the relative minority of our protein supply. So, so why does this kind of dichotomy exist? Well, the answer comes down to the animals at the center of our food production system. Take the chicken, for example, that has been relentlessly optimized for efficiency over the last few decades. Um, even the chicken as a living, breathing, metabolizing organism that needs to undergo you know, the process of cellular respiration to thermoregulate, even the chicken um, needs to take in eight energy calories in the form of soy, wheat, legumes, in order to turn out a single calorie on the other end for human consumption. And what this means is that 
animals just really can't compete on efficiency grounds with plants, microbes, and animal cells. Um, you can see in this chart um, a, a range of different kinds of feed conversion ratios, um, but ultimately what we're finding is that cycling calories through animals in this way um, is equivalent to 87 to 97% of food waste in production, just because of the fact that they're metabolizing organisms. But despite the fact that there's a growing amount of awareness about all of these dimensions, the opportunity to build a food system that's more sustainable, that's healthy and delicious um, for human, animal, and planetary health, um, global meat demand shows absolutely no signs of slowing down. Instead, it's skyrocketing. Um, and we're seeing that by 2050, the world's population is anticipated to increase by 30%, but demand for poultry alone is anticipated to increase by 120%. So it's not just that the growth in the global population and, and um, the growth in meat demand will mirror each other one-to-one, -one, but per capita, there's more meat demand, and that's primarily being driven by increasing wealth in the developing world. So this poses a really interesting behavioral science question, right? Um, how The question is not really, how can we convince people to eat less meat? Um, because it's kind of clear that that theory of change isn't really effective. Um, the question is, how will we feed 10 billion people by 2050? And how will we do so by letting people have the meat that they love, but produced in a better way? That is what our entire theory of change boils down to. Let's make meat, but in a better way. Let's make meat that tastes the same or better than conventional animal meat, that costs the same or less, is just as convenient or more convenient, and is produced in a way that's sustainable, secure, and just. So at the Good Food Institute, our goal is as a nonprofit organization to develop the roadmap forward for a sustainable, secure, and just protein supply. And we do so by pushing on different levers of the change-making process. Um, we have a policy team that's really focused on clearing a regulatory pathway so that alternative proteins have a fair chance to compete in the market and that there's more open access research funding for alternative proteins. We have a corporate engagement team that is partnering with um, anywhere from the smallest entrepreneurs and investors to the biggest food and meat companies in the world to really drive more capital into this field, accelerate and scale the supply chain all faster than market forces alone would allow. And then we have our science and technology team, which is the team that I sit on. Um, and we're really focused on taking a close look at where we are today in terms of technological progress and where we realistic need, realistically need to be in order for alternative proteins to be a viable commercial technology that feeds the world. Um, and we're also a global organization. Um, we operate in, in multiple regions that you can see on the right-hand side, right side of this slide. 
So as a nonprofit um, driven 100% by philanthropy, we play a pretty unique role in the alternative protein ecosystem. Um, I, I think it's, it's really a blessing to be able to not be beholden to any individual actor's needs or bottom lines, which means our focus is on sharing knowledge freely. We build so many open access resources to just help aggregate the available knowledge in the space and make it easier for folks to learn about it. Um, and we focus on the white space. So because we're able to kind of take a big picture perspective over the long term, over the globe, we are able to identify the most critical bottlenecks that we ought to be focusing on in order to advance this field. And then we mobilize stakeholders around these white spaces. And again, we take that big picture perspective. That means we're, we're kind of looking beyond the present, beyond our national borders, um, and, and looking industry-wide to forecast and avert obstacles that might arise. So let's dive into a discussion about the alternative protein landscape. Um, when we talk about alternative proteins, we define them as, um, as direct replacements for conventional animal products, conventional meat, egg, and dairy. So we're not talking about um, the sad, lonely quinoa burger that sits on the menu that no one's really interested in ordering. We're not really talking about um, protein bars or shakes. Um, we're talking about meat. We're talking about eggs and dairy that, that people um, really, really love. Um, and so the alternative protein landscape can be broken down, as we define it, into three production platforms, um, three different technology groupings um, by which to produce alternative proteins or ingredients for alternative protein products. And the first of these is plant-based. So plant-based meat, egg, and dairy are um, produced directly from plants. Just like animal products, they're composed of protein, fat, vitamins, minerals, and water. None of those things are unique to animal meat. So next generation plant-based options are all about biomimicking the sensory experience of meat so that it looks, tastes, and cooks just like conventional meat and offers some nutritional benefits on top of that. So the essence of plant-based meat is about persuading plant proteins, these globular proteins that are built for storage, to behave like fibular animal proteins. Um, and again, when you think about what meat actually is, protein, fat, vitamins, minerals, water, um, there are all of these biochemical similarities with plants. Plants also have all of those things. Um, that we can then utilize to find um, pathways for biomimicry. So when we take a closer look at how plant-based meat is actually made, um, it's just starting with the raw material, starting with your crop. Um, and that might be wheat, it might be soy, it might be pea, um, or any of the you know, vast array of um, species in the plant kingdom that we haven't even really looked carefully at. 
And it's about then optimizing that raw material to be well-suited for an alternative protein application or a plant-based meat application. And once that happens, you break down your raw material into its component parts and functionalize those parts. So typically that's the proteins, the starches, and the dietary fibers. Um, and then once you have your component parts in the right ratios, you enter this third phase of end product formulation and manufacturing, where much of the texturization benefits come into play. Um, and there are so many opportunities for uh, optimization along each of these buckets of research and development, which I'll talk about in future slides. But as we've seen in the last few years, the plant-based meat market has grown really, really rapidly. And it's, it's specifically exploding in comparison to animal counterparts, which you can see here, a category by category comparison um, uh, across eggs, meat, cheese, butter, you can see plant-based kind of skyrocketing, which seems to signal um, an enduring type of growth um, that, that makes it more of a durable consumer trend rather than a passing leading fad. And the competitive landscape is proliferating. So beyond the Impossible Burger and the Beyond Burger, um, we're also seeing some of the biggest um, meat companies in the world start to introduce plant-based lines of their own or invest in alternative protein products. But despite the fact that the competitive landscape is proliferating, we still have a long way to go, um, right? If we look at this slide, um, this column shows you the share of retail milk that's comprised of plant-based milk, that's 15%. Um, and, and currently plant-based meat is 1.4% of the total retail meat market. So if um, plant-based meat is to achieve the same market share parity that plant-based milk presently has, we're talking about a $14 billion opportunity. Um, so there's a lot of room left to grow. There's a lot ample room for new commercial entrants and a lot of room for technological progress. So some of these, this technological progress relates to paradigm shifting manufacturing technologies. So those of you who are biochemists or mechanical engineers um, might be interested in the fact, or even material scientists um, in, in these paradigm shifting manufacturing technologies. Um, traditionally, extrusion is what's used to texturize your plant proteins so that they're more fibrous in nature. Um, but extrusion has its shortcomings. It's pretty darn expensive. It's quite um, energy intensive. And so some groups are making iterative improvements to extrusion um, such that it is less costly and less energy intensive. Um, however, there are groups that are exploring different technologies altogether. 3D printing, for example, has emerged as a really exciting production method for three-dimensional whole cuts of meat like steak. And there are startups like Redefine Meat and Nova Meat that are utilizing 3D printing to propel this field forward. 
There's also an early experimental technology called shear cell technology, which utilizes a novel mechanical process that basically creates sheets of meat and layers them into fibrous, uh, layers these fibrous uh, vegetable protein sheets um, so that you're forming three-dimensional cuts. Um, and this research is being done at Wageningen University in the Netherlands. And then some startups are eschewing these kinds of mechanical processes altogether in the form of biological processes like solid state fermentation. Um, Emergy Foods and Atlas Foods, for example, are using mycelium, which is the root structure of mushrooms, to create the structure and protein for fungi-based meat. And across all of these opportunities, across all of those research areas we highlighted before, one thing is really clear, and that's that data will really be central to the next phase of plant-based meat production. Um, instead of the really expensive iterative experimentation that accompanies um, you know, slowly breeding um, crops for a desired end application, if we utilize the power of big data, um, you can imagine collecting so much information about genotypes, phenotypes, the nutritional breakdown of each of these raw materials, the functionality and the soil conditions with which they should be grown in, um, and, and really optimizing this in a big um, foundation-shifting way. So in the interest of time, we'll shift now to talk about the second production platform, cultivated meat. Cultivated meat is produced directly from animal cells. So this is genuine meat that is grown from the cellular level by facilitating the same biological process that happens inside an animal, um, that the warmth, the nutrients, the environmental conditions needed for those cells to build muscle and fat. So how is cultivated meat made? In essence, cultivated meat starts with your raw materials, just like with plant-based meat. You start with a sample of stem cells obtained and banked from an animal. And once you have those cells, they need nutrients to grow. Um, and that's something we call cell culture media that is um, comprised of, of basal media, the kind of sugar, salts, amino acids, water, um, and then growth factors, which are signaling proteins that tell the cells how to behave at each phase of the process. Once you have your cells and you feed these cells their nutrients and they begin to grow, um, there are two different phases of the bioprocess that this um, production is housed in. The first is cellular proliferation. So having cells um, growing in the optimal environment that allows it to duplicate really rapidly. And then the second phase is tissue maturation or um, the differentiation of these cells into their uh, muscle, fat, and connective tissue. And it's really in this phase that the scaffolding material becomes very important. So when you have your cells and your cell culture media, they need something to grow around in order to become anything that resembles meat. And, and this three-dimensional structure is what we call scaffolding. It's likely going to be very porous so that 
um, nutrient media that cell culture media can flow through and reach all of the cells throughout. Um, it's likely to be either edible or biodegradable or ultimately removed from the final product. But there are ample um, opportunities to explore the kinds of biomaterials that we might use as scaffolding. So likewise, with the plant-based meat sector, with cultivated meat, we've seen exponential growth in the competitive landscape. The field didn't even really exist until 2015, um, where we had a small cluster of companies form. And now in 2020, 2021, we have nearing, um, I think now 100 companies in the cultivated meat space. And it's been so cool to see these companies form and differentiate, not just along, you know, as end product manufacturers, but also we're seeing differentiation along the supply chain. So we are now seeing the formation of business to business companies, which signals an increasing confidence that investors have in the ability of this industry to become more than just a pipe dream. Because you're having these companies form um, who are producing cell lines, cell culture meter scaffolding, bioprocess design for cultivated meat manufacturers, which means that the time horizon over which these payoffs will um, pay off is, is a lot longer. Um, and yet they're emerging. And this slide shows you some of the world's first associated with cultivated meat. So in 2013, we saw the world's first cultivated burger come out of Maastricht University in Mark Post's lab, produced at a measly $300,000. But in the last few years, we've seen that cost come down many orders of magnitude, um, such that, you know, in 2020, we hit a number of really exciting milestones that really bolstered the legitimacy of this field, including massive, impressive funding rounds by Memphis Meats, now known as Upside Foods. We saw the first professorship focused on cultivated meat or cellular agriculture at TU Munich. We saw uh, the NSF grant $3.5 million for research and development at UC Davis that really signaled the legitimacy of this, this field um, from the perspective of scientific inquiry that might advance society. And lastly, we saw um, Singapore become the very first country to issue regulatory approval for cultivated meat. And we saw the company Eat Just make the first successful commercial sale of a cultivated meat product, where now in Singapore, you can order it for delivery. Um, so the cost has come down orders of magnitude, but there's still a lot of room left to go. There are still many challenges in our path. Um, and so this should not be taken as a sign that we've arrived here, but instead that this path is tractable, that in fact, cultivated meat can become a viable technology to supplement the protein supply. So where are we actually in the trajectory of the cultivated meat industry? Um, in 2020, we saw some of the first pilot scale facilities come online. Um, and in 2021, we expect to see some of these products become available for purchase. 
Um, we've seen more pilot scale proofs of concept, um, and we expect that the products that do come online will probably enter first through high-end restaurants or come in as ingredients, cultivated ingredients, like cultivated fat incorporated into a plant-based meat product, for example. In 2025, we might see regulatory approval in a multitude of regions. Um, we've start, started to see an exciting regulatory progress here in the United States with the FDA and USDA partnering together on a joint regulatory framework for cultivated meat. Um, and we're likely to see a 10 to 100 times cost reduction in 2025. And then come 2030, maybe we'll start to see operational industrial scale facilities. That's a big question mark. Um, and perhaps we'll start to see the price parity of some products, some less sophisticated products become feasible. Um, I find this slide very interesting because it shows um, where current production volumes are currently at, um, right? So these are some of the companies that have come out with media statements um, announcing the production volume of their pilot facilities. And we've just documented all of the ones that we've been able to source publicly here. Um, but you can see along these different product types, um, a range from five to 190 um, tons per year in production volume that are possible from these um, bioprocessing facilities. One question that I commonly get about cultivated meat is how it lives up to its sustainability mandate. And it's an incredibly important question that I think we need to center um, our field around. Um, and what, uh, last year, GFI and CE Delft did a technical economic analysis and a life cycle analysis that was released earlier this year um, that incorporated data from cultivated meat companies across the supply chain um, and took a look at um, what the life cycle analyses would be for cultivated meat production at scale. And one thing is, one thing is uh, very clear that there are massive sustainability gains with cultivated meat, but that cultivated meat really needs renewable energy. We need clean energy to grow alongside the alternative protein field in order to really realize the full potential of cultivated meat technologies. So you can see compared to conventional beef, for example, and, and these are using pretty ambitious benchmarks for conventional beef, the global warming potential might result in a 92% reduction um, when you cultivate beef rather than growing um, animal beef. But just like with plant-based meat, there are so many research and development opportunities along this entire production process. Starting with the cell lines, for example, um, there are cell lines that exist for humans and for, um, for mice. Um, However, meat-relevant cell lines have not really been developed yet. GFI is funding a number of cell line development projects to lower this barrier of access for folks wanting to do research in the space, but there's room to grow um, to build out cell lines for other meat-relevant species. Cell culture media remains a really big opportunity for 
further optimization because it's expected to account for 96, 99% of the marginal cost of the product. Cell culture media um, made animal free. We still have this opportunity to perhaps use food grade ingredients instead of pharmaceutical grade ingredients um, and produce recombinant growth factors. Um, so there have been a number of exciting developments with cell culture media um, at Northwestern, for example, Paul Burge's lab um, had uh, a study where they were able, even at bench scale, to um, reduce the cost of cell culture media by 97% just by producing stable growth factors in-house. Um, but there's still a lot of room left to go. And with scaffolding, there are so many different um, groups experimenting with materials like spinach, decellularized spinach or decellularized jackfruit um, or texturized vegetable protein like at the, um, at the Technion. So there's still a lot of room for exploration around what the optimal biomaterial is for scaffolding that allows nutrient media to flow through, gives the right kind of structure, allows for the marbling of different cuts of meat, um, and is ultimately edible or biodegradable. And then there's a lot of um, discovery still left to be made when it comes to the entire bioprocess that the cultivated meat production process is housed within. What do these bioreactors look like? Um, do we have sensors in line that are monitoring media um, recycling and monitoring cell behavior? Um, are there opportunities for us to, um, to build bioreactors that are um, a lot more energy efficient um, and that make better use of expensive ingredients like our cell culture media? And so while there remain lots of opportunities for cultivated meat, um, there are also a lot of um, interesting research questions associated with our third production platform, and that's fermentation. Fermentation essentially utilizes microorganisms like filamentous fungi and bacteria, and either harvest their entire protein biomass for alternative protein products, or programs these microorganisms to express specific ingredients like specific proteins, fats, flavoring molecules for alternative protein products. And fermentation is an age-old technology. Um, we've seen traditional fermentation be used in the food industry for centuries, really. Um, however, there are different kinds of fermentation that are now um, being utilized a little bit more heavily, like biomass fermentation that leverages the fact that microorganisms grow super rapidly and have a high protein content um, to produce large protein quantities more efficiently than pretty much anything else could. Microorganisms are remarkable because they don't need sunlight, they don't need to sleep, they kind of work around the clock, they eat pretty much anything um, and can turn it into protein. Um, and we're seeing um, the emergence of precision fermentation as well, 
where there are microbial hosts used to produce specific functional ingredients that require a greater purity. Um, so Impossible Meat is an example of a company that's utilizing precision fermentation to produce their leg hemoglobin, uh, leg hemoglobin compound um, that's responsible for the, the really kind of bloody meaty taste of their plant-based meat product. I am seeing some of these laser pointers on the slide. I'm not sure where that came from. Um, or if um, whoever put those, I think I saw someone drawing there. If you can try and erase that, that'd be great. But it looks like I don't have eraser capabilities. Um, importantly, fermentation is just now emerging as a critical enabling platform for the alternative protein sector. So we're seeing um, that there are different groupings like in the slide before of fermentation technologies that all contribute different types of products, different types of ingredients. Um, and yet we really barely scratch the surface of what's possible here. Um, fermentation is, is well demonstrated at scale. It's a mature technology that already occurs at scales of up to 600,000 liters. It's really low cost. It's widely utilized to produce industrial chemicals, feed ingredients, and other really high volume, low cost products. It's something that's familiar to the food industry um, with lots of food safe microbial species already approved by regulators. And it has a really rapid production and research and development cycle, which means we can iterate upon this a lot more rapidly and harvest uh, the crop a lot more rapidly than with some of the other production platforms. So what is next here? What we know is that animal product alternatives will occur along a spectrum. So we really don't, we're often asked, you know, which of these products will reign supreme? which of these production platforms will reign supreme. But in reality, we see them complementing each other. Um, Plant-based cultivated and fermentation production platforms are likely to contribute ingredients to some ultimate alternative protein product. Um, we may in the next few years see some hybrid products emerge that demonstrate this, for example, where you have a plant-based burger with cultivated fat. We're already seeing plant-based burgers with fermentation-powered ingredients. And so it's really the synergy between these production platforms that will allow for this next wave of the agricultural revolution. And so this protein transformation we anticipate will most likely happen in three ways. Um, you can see the first wave already being powered by plant-based innovation. This is a graph by consulting company, Boston Consulting Group. And um, they anticipate that come 2035, 11% to 20% of the global meat market might be comprised of alternative proteins, depending on how much capital flows into this space. So the first wave powered by plant-based, the second wave powered by fermentation, and then lastly, that third wave powered by animal cell-based products. In 2020, despite the fact that it was a challenging and unimaginably challenging year for people in, in every corner of the world, 
we did see record-breaking investments in the alternative protein space, which signals, I think, a, a reason to be optimistic that investors are starting to really believe in alternative proteins as a way to um, bolster our food supply chain. Um, I think COVID-19 exposed in many ways the fragility of um, our food production systems and, and illuminated the opportunity for us to build a more resilient food system that's good for our planet. But despite this, there's significant underinvestment in alternative proteins as a climate tech solution. So on the left-hand side, you can see the percentage of global greenhouse gas emissions attributable to each um, kind of major grouping of um, service like global livestock production accounting for 14.5%. And then on the right-hand side, you can see the amount of capital that's been invested in alternative proteins and these other climate forward technologies um, as of the end of 2020. And you can see just the big disproportionate um, amount of investment, disproportionately low investment numbers flowing towards alternative proteins rel uh, relative to the amount of impact that it has on global warming. So there's this really big opportunity to um, again, pay more attention to alternative proteins as an important pathway forward for preserving a habitable planet. So now finally, what role do you all play? Students and researchers actually play a very pivotal role in defining the trajectory of the alternative protein field. And what we know is that universities when harnessed correctly, can be engines for accelerating the kind of innovation that we need to see in order for us to actually build a sustainable, secure, and just food system. Whether we're talking about building an educational ecosystem that trains future scientists and engineers with the skills they need to join the alternative protein workforce and help accelerate technological progress, or we're talking about having more foundational research and development happen within our research centers and institutes and labs that allow academic researchers to investigate critical foundational questions, some of these really pre-competitive questions that are best suited for an academic environment that advance the state of alternative protein science. Or we're talking about the commercialization of that research into companies that actually make real world impact and, and finally, the development of interdisciplinary communities on campus that allow um, folks to break down their silos and work together as a force multiplier for the field. We started the Alt Protein Project last year to do precisely this. And we have groups around the world, 16 groups right now to be precise. Um, and one of our groups sits right there within the research triangle at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. So those of you who are interested in getting involved, I highly recommend that you reach out to the Chapel Hill Alt Protein Project. They've started an exchange group at the NC Biotech Center um, and are really excited for students and researchers to get more involved in building these research triangle-wide ecosystems that will allow biotech and agricultural innovation hubs like the Research Triangle to become leaders in alternative proteins. 
So in recent years, we've made leaps and bounds of progress, and yet ample white space still remains. There are so many opportunities that exist across the entire ecosystem, whether we're talking about research opportunities and plant-based cultivated or fermentation production platforms. And you can find these specific white space ideas, um, specific company ideas and research project ideas at gfi.org solutions. In addition to reading more about um, the, the most um, pressing industry bottlenecks. And the last idea that I'll leave everyone off with is that it's really, really rare to be at the cusp of building a new industry. Um, and we have the opportunity right now at the beginning, all of the early entrants that come aboard to um, redefine the trajectory of our food system and to build this industry puzzle piece by puzzle piece in a way that's the most diverse and inclusive of, of all of the potential futures we might inhabit. Um, so I really encourage you all to think about um, prioritizing alternative proteins in your research, in your educational trajectories, because the opportunity to impact billions of people in the future is, is really unrivaled with this field. Here is a slide that shows you some key career resources that might be useful to you in your exploration. Um, and you can explore more open access resources, including our funding opportunities, our research grant program at gfi.org. Um, here's my contact information. I will stop sharing now so that we have time for Q&A. But thank you all so much for listening and for giving me your time today. I'm really excited to answer any of the questions you have. Thank you, Amy. And if you want to open your chat as well, there have been a number of comments and questions in there. And I'm going to ask if some of the people that were already writing comments on the chat that have multiple comments, if you would like prefer to maybe um, uh, be uh, talk instead of uh, see the, ch the chat messages, you're welcome to, to make a comment here as well. And if anyone in class also wants to ask a question to Amy, we can start that way. Before we get started, Amy, are you able to see uh, the chat and the raised pe people raising their hands or not? Or do you need us to moderate for you? I can see the chat, and I believe I will also be able to see folks that are raising their hands. Okay. Um, but if there are specific questions, you yeah. must want me to answer. Okay, well, um, let's have one in person first from Katie. And then if there's anyone in virtual who would like to ask a question, use the raise hand function so we can um, see that you'd like to go next. Thank you so much. That was really interesting. I'll try to project behind a mask. Um, one of the big white spaces that I see is consumer perception and consumer preference data. Um, are you personally familiar with how that is unfolding either in the field more broadly through your organization specifically, but that seems with the absence of that, it may also be hard to, to have some great investment if you don't show potential demand. Like, I'm just really curious about what consumer data exists out there on that. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for your question. We actually have a tremendous amount of consumer data um, that I don't have slides around today, um, but there are so many consumer studies that have been done gauging the receptiveness and the demand for these types of products. 
Um, and depending on what you call the product, depending on how you frame the questions, um, the consumer um, acceptance kind of ranges from 20 to 80 percent of consumers are ready to try cultivated meat products um, and even greater amounts interested in ready to try plant-based meat products. Um, so right now we anticipate that for the foreseeable future, demand will continue to outpace supply. Um, when you look at the realities of the production volumes that are actually possible right now, um, it's, it's quite small compared to what people are wanting. Um, so the field needs an opportunity to scale in order to even meet demand. Presently, we've seen um, lots of evidence, just empirical evidence um, beyond just you know, consumers telling us what they want. We've seen consumer purchasing behaviors reflecting the fact that there's a supply shortage relevant, uh, relative to what people are wanting. So almost every major plant-based meat company has, has experienced big supply shortages as it tries to scale you know, their raw material sourcing and manufacturing facilities and processes. So right now, our focus is really on building capacity as an industry to even meet the existing demand. Um, but you're right that consumer acceptance is incredibly important. And I think that's something our field takes really seriously. Um, transparency is something that's really important to the alternative protein field. So there are lots of companies that, you know, whether plant-based or cultivated, that if you knock on their doors, they say, yeah, come on in. Let's, let's, let me show you how our products are made. Um, because we do care a lot about consumer trust, food safety, and, um, and ultimately, um, consumer acceptance will come from familiarity, right? It, biologically, we're hard, hardwired to um, be kind of skeptical of new foods. And that's a really important evolutionary instinct. But um, with familiarity, um, as we socialize these products and um, make them seem a little bit less strange, I think consumer acceptance will unfold naturally. Paul has his hand raised. Are you able to unmute yourself? I'm getting a bit of feedback from, I think, the room. Okay. You ask your question? Yeah, happy to answer Paul's question. Amy, I have a question. I posted a lot in the chat. So thank you for covering, I think, both topics of fermented food ingredients as well as uh, you know, cell-cultured food. You opened your presentation uh, talking about food insecurity. And I was wondering if you talk about how you think um, this cultured food or cellular food would actually help support that. Because to me, it seems like this is going to be a very extensive process. I don't necessarily see that as a solution to food insecurity. Yeah, Paul, you sound a little bit like a robot to me. I'm not sure if you do to others as well, but I think I understood your question. Um, yeah, the question is, how does cultivated meat as this really expensive product right now ultimately help um, mitigate food insecurity in the future? Is that right? Okay, cool. Yeah, it's a really good question. This, this theory of change only works if we can get 
alternative protein products to cost the same or less than conventional animal counterparts, right? Because if we know what the drivers of consumer demand are um, all around the world, it's taste, it's price, it's convenience. You got to make it taste good. You might have to make it cost a reasonable amount and it has to be accessible. And so I think with all of these companies, it's very clear that unless we hit all of these markers, the field does not take off. And that's why it's been so exciting to see <clears throat> the orders of magnitude of cost reduction um, in the cultivated meat field and the plant-based meat field. So there are projections with our techno-economic analysis that I can link you to um, after this talk if you want to shoot me an email that shows why we think it's commercially viable. And it paints you know, a, a bunch of different scenarios under which cultivated meat achieves price parity by 2030, 2035, 2040. Um, and so I would encourage you to take a closer look at that study because it actually captures real production data um, and it can show you why, where the uh, cost-related bottlenecks are. But in essence, it comes down to the fact that cultivated meat takes far fewer inputs than traditional livestock production. It's a shorter production time horizon. We're talking about days and weeks as opposed to months, and in some cases, years. Um, we're talking about uh, the ability to be um, really responsive to consumer demand, right? Instead of raising animals a year and a half um, in advance, trying to predict what consumers will be up to, um, will, will be wanting. You can really change categories of animals really easily with cultivated meat. Um, and ultimately, it's less land, less water, um, and these inputs, these far fewer inputs, um, result uh, in, in reflections in the cost. So I'll paint, um, maybe dig up the link to that techno-economic analysis um, for you to take a closer look at. But it's a really good question. Um, I see, let's see, a question from Ashton. Yeah, I'll try to be quick so um, we can have time for the question from Javine as well. But I was wondering, like, hearing all this sounds great, but what about the meat companies? I mean, are you seeing sort of opposition from sort of major players in animal agriculture? Or are you seeing sort of like buy-in investment? I was just curious, especially seeing the competitive landscape and particularly the proliferation of business-to-business -business um, activity, whether a lot of this is actually sort of um, companies or firms that have traditionally focused on animal agriculture sort of pivoting into this space. You know, kind of what are you seeing there? Yeah, thank you for your question, Ashton. Um, we have seen um, from, from the biggest meat companies in the world, all of the biggest meat companies in the world have either invested in alternative proteins or um, started introducing alternative protein lines of their own. We're talking Cargill, JBS, Purdue, um, and they're starting to rebrand themselves as protein producers rather than meat producers. Um, but we are seeing some resistance from, um, from the meat lobby. Um, there are pretty juicy you know, labor censorship laws and um, battles being waged. Um, 
at the state level, and um, we've seen most of the label censorship bills be defeated. And, and this is what I mean by label censorship is, um, can alternative protein products be called meat? Can plant-based meat be called plant-based meat? Or does the term meat need to be reserved for um, products that involve the slaughter of a live animal? And that's kind of the heart of the discussion right now. And so there's some suggestion that um, using terms like meat would obf obfuscate or confuse the consumer. But in reality, we think um, that these laws would only serve to disservice the consumer from making informed decisions. Because with cultivated meat, for example, it, it is meat. Um, and we should be transparent about the production methods. The whole point is to be transparent about the production methods because that's our entire you know, value proposition. Um, but folks who are allergic to meat, to animal meat, will be allergic to cultivated meat. And having that be really clear is really important for consumer safety. Um, so there's resistance, but we're also seeing the dialogue start to be bridged, which is really exciting. And ultimately, what we want to do is work together um, right now with the existing livestock production sector to explore what this transition looks like, how can we leverage existing infrastructure, existing labor, retool and reskill. Um, and there are all of these opportunities, I think, to build a path forward together, because I think ensuring a really just labor force transition is critical here. But thank you for your question, Ashton. Okay, Thank I'm going to have to um, pop in because it's 1 o'clock and we are out of time. So if everyone could help me thank Amy for joining us today. Um, and also, um, thank you for a really engaging talk. We had a lot of questions we couldn't get to. Um, so I really uh, wish we had more time. But, um, yeah, again, thank you. And we will see you guys next week. And if... Um, yeah, I don't know. And Amy, we'll, we're going to send you some of the questions from the chat so that you can also, if you want to be in yeah. touch with other people here and people want to be in touch with Amy, so we can continue the conversation and have some questions answered. Absolutely. Please feel free to reach out at amyh.gfi.org. Happy to answer your questions. Be synchronously. And thank you so much again for having me here. I'm so excited about GES and, and really um, a big fan of the work that you guys all are doing. Thanks so much, everyone. Bye.